Hey, this is James Kotak, and you're listening to Focus on Metal with Scott and Richie. Hey, Metalhead, Scott Thompson here, welcoming you to yet another week of Focus on Metal. Just occurred to me that we are halfway through Metal Month. Hope everyone out there is making good use of that. Probably one of the biggest things going on right now is the uh, frantic grab for Judas Priest tickets. For those of you not in the know yet, yeah, Priest will be going on tour in 2018 to promote their brand new album, Firepower. And they announced the tour about two weeks ago, and they have been uh, steadily adding on dates each week. So uh, definitely, if you haven't got tickets yet, or you're thinking, you know, crap, all the tickets around the uh, venues closest to me are sold out, definitely keep checking on uh, JudasPriest.com, because as I said, they're always adding brand new dates. And regardless of that, of course, I know Firepower is going to be an awesome album. And they're going back to working with Tom Allen again, the guy behind a lot of the classic early pre-stuff. So I'm really looking forward to this just from that perspective. But of course, anything new from the priest is always, always worth celebrating. And then I mean to sweeten it, I mean, tour mates, you're talking about Saxon coming back over in North America again, touring with the priest and also Black Star Riders. So there's a pretty unbelievable bill there, right? With uh, with Black Star Riders and Saxon and, of course, the Mighty Priest. So uh, really looking forward to uh, some springtime metal out of those guys. So anyways, on to uh, the business of this week's show. So a few weeks ago, we had done a, a two-part career retrospective on Doug Aldrich, one that uh, Richie always wanted to do. And yeah, we're going to repeat the uh, the two-parter retrospective again for this week and next week. So we are going to celebrate a chunk of Metal Month 2017 with two solid weeks of James Kotak. Yep, he may no longer be in the Scorps, but uh, we might as well celebrate the Kotak attack in style. So a few weeks ago, Richie spent uh, an hour, hour and a half on the line with James, running down everything from growing up in Louisville and early days, playing in bands, all the way up to what he's doing now, as well as talking about the upcoming brand new Kotak album that he's currently uh, working on. And, you know, I have to say that uh, Richie and I were fortunate enough to spend uh, a little bit of time with James back a few years ago at uh, one of the Scorpion dates here in Boston. And he is really, truly one of the nicest guys in the music business. Treated Richie and I like we were, uh, you know, long lost friends. Uh, really nice guy and uh, just really welcoming and open and just cool to hang out with. Can't say enough good stuff about him. And, you know, that really hit home as I edited up this interview. And, you know, one of the things he was talking about was, you know, joining the Scorpions and getting the offer and going back and, you know, James, you know, asking them like, well, you know, why me? And uh, the first answer he got was, because you're a nice guy. And he, you know, he relates that story in this as well. But when I edited that part up, I just, you know, it brought back to hanging out with uh, with James down in Boston. And uh, again, we have, you know, the opportunity to meet a lot of these guys in person. And, uh, you know, James is one of those guys that when you're done meeting them, you just, you kind of remember that forever. And uh, just one of the big things that stands out is just really what a nice guy this dude is. So I'm thinking that right now we're going to roll the clock way back into James' early career in recording a little band called Buster Brown. And I believe that this band actually had two albums out. James didn't play on one of them, but he did play on Sign of Victory. So I thought, you know what? I'm going to play a track off of the Sign of Victory album from Buster Brown. And then we're just going to get right into the retrospective with James Kotak. And, you know, one other thing, too, when I was going back and I'm listening to this Buster Brown album, I'm thinking, you got one of the most kick-ass drummers you could possibly have in rock, and yet a lot of the dumb tracks on here, I swear to God, they sound like they're uh, synsonic drums. And I'm thinking, what a, what a misplaced use of just an awesome drummer. But anyways... Like I said, we're going to roll in with a little Buster Brown track off of their Sign of Victory release, and uh, then right into our talk with Kotak. Hey, 
we'll get right into it. Sure. So, did you come from a, a musical family in the beginning? Um, well, actually, my father played Hammond Deep the organ. He played like their clubs and stuff. And uh, from my earliest memory, when I was a kid, I was we had a basement, we had a middle floor, and we had our bedrooms, which were on the upper floor. And he would be down in the basement playing his organ, and I'd hear it come to the air vent. And, uh, and then he'd go to the bar. It was like clockwork every night. I knew when he was leaving, he'd take off. And sometimes when he got home from the bar, he'd, he'd play after he got home from the bar and then wake us up like around midnight or one. But, uh, you know, he was never like pushing music on us. I, I just naturally gravitated towards it. And uh, I used to see him play, help him move his art organ when I got a van. And, um, you know, that was it. It was, it was like really pretty cool. Yeah. And was your first instrument drums? Well, actually, I started playing the trumpet in third or fourth grade. I want to say fourth grade. Because uh, my friend said, hey, man, why don't you come to band with me? There is, I don't have anybody to go with. I'm like, oh, okay. So my mom um, got a, got me a trumpet, and I started. And uh, I played all through high school in the college. Yeah. And what made you play pick? Was it guitar next? Drums? No, I, no I, I played drums. Uh, there was a department store near my house. And they were going out of business. It was like really weird. They had bands. It'd be like if you went to Walmart and his band playing in the corner. And uh, they're playing like, you know, all the hits from the 70s. You know, it was a trip. And uh, I watched the drummer and I was nine. And I was like fascinated. He was so fast. And I was like, well, how does he work the pedal? And that, that thing on the left, they called the hi-hat now. And uh, it just, I got it just... So I just like went, wow. And this was only a couple of months after I got the trumpet. And my mom's like, going, no, no way. No drums. We can't afford it. And uh, but my brother's friend had a drum set uh, he wanted to sell. And uh, so uh, I bought it for $50. I ordered a lot of lines to get that money. <laughs> so tell me, tell me about the, uh, the first couple of bands you were in. Well, my very first band, I was like, uh, like 11 or 12. And I met a guy at school because I was very, I was always the youngest guy in class. I was like 12 years old in the eighth grade. And I met this guy from school named Eddie Garner. And he lived close to me. Oh no, this might have been seventh grade. And uh, I, somebody told him, said, yeah, man, we can form a band. And, and I asked around, they go, oh, well, Eddie plays guitar. He was in the 11th or 12th grade, which is, he drove, which was huge. So we got together and it was just me and him. And him and his shirt children don't have. And we played all the Beatles and uh, even the Beatles fanatic, which was cool. And uh, we just played all kinds of stuff. And I started singing early on because we didn't have, we sang and then we trade off singing. And uh, our first gig, it was me and him and my friend from, from school played bass. And we played at a park for his cousin and we made, I think, eight or $12, something like that. It was a blast. <laughs> yeah. And, um did you get lessons on the drums, or did you play along to records? How did you get better on them? Well, I started playing along with 8-track tapes, uh, because that's, uh, my brother got some from his friend, uh, and uh, that's all we had around. But um, um, uh, my dad did... Uh, my mom and dad divorced when I was like 8 or 9, and I didn't really see him for about a year or two, and then all of a sudden he calls up and says, hey, you should take... I hear you're interested in drums. You want some drum lessons? I'm like, oh, yeah. So for the next two years, I took drum lessons from this guy, and he was all about the rudiments, the fundamentals. He would not show me any kind of drum set, like any beats or anything. He would always show me the fundamentals. And at the time, I didn't like it, but now in retrospect, it was the best thing ever because I got the proper technique early on, and it was a very disciplined sort of a thing. So, uh, you know, thanks, Dad. Yeah, and who who are your favorite drummers growing up and your biggest influences? Um, I, starting off, I was really into Grand Funk Railroad, Don Brewer, and then that, that Grand Funk Live album, Eight Shot Tape. Again, we, I couldn't afford to buy any, any albums or anything, so I was at the will of whatever my brother brought home. And he had, like, Grand Funk Railroad, Led Zeppelin IV, uh, Jimi Hendrix, Smash It, Michael Garkinsaw. I mean, uh, just those types of bands. Uh, we had uh, Beatles, Sgt. Pepper. I just played along with those over and over, and uh, that's how it learned. And, and we had a set of headphones, and we had worked, and I would just practice and play that, and then I'd play with Eddie Garner. And then uh, with, uh, and our first band was called Oz, 
But uh, that, that's basically it, man. Yeah, and tell me about your first serious band where you thought that you could actually make a living playing music. Well, I met a guy in, when I was in uh, eighth or ninth grade. He was in eleventh grade, Jerry Rubio, and he played keyboards like you know, I mean, he was just insanely great. He played blues, he played everything, and we would get together and jam. And we formed a band called Nuthouse, <laughs> and. Uh, we we danced as me and him, and then we got a guitarist, and we played at the school once for pep rally, and I was like, "Oh, this is great!" Because it was going nuts. And uh, but he had a friend who was a singer who used to do wedding receptions, so I'd go on the gigs with him and help him load the gear, and it was like fun. But his friend was the drummer, but eventually his friend lost business, and I took over, and you know, I started making like you know forty bucks here, thirty five there, and I was like, "Oh wow, this is cool!" So. Um, Fast forward to the year to uh, 1977. Um, there was a keyboard player from Mass High School who was in a band, and they were all much older. They were like really old. They were like 24 and, <laughs> and 25 and 28. Wow! And uh, I went over to to the, the band house to help my friend, who was their drummer, pick up his drums. While he was upstairs having a meeting, me and the keyboard player Jerry Rubio were downstairs, and we started jamming. Anyway, the sound man uh, for the band heard me playing and, and came and looked and was like, wow. So once my friend, who was the drummer, we all went home. They told me, to this, when he went home, they told me to the sign and said, hey, would you come back and play again tomorrow? And I was like, oh, yeah. And, this, and then you know, one thing led to another, and they go, I was only 14. I could, then I turned 15. They go, hey, could, can you go on the road? I'm like, well, yeah, because <laughs> uh, they didn't go down to Daytona Beach every every for the spring break. And crazy enough, uh, we started playing gigs around Louisville, Kentucky. And then in uh, early March, we went down to Daytona Beach, Florida. I was through from school. One of them, the 24-year-old Dakar signed as my legal guardian. And we ended up staying there from March 1st through May 1st for like eight Weeks of spring break. It was heaven, <laughs> And I kept, the fact that my mom would let me pick off from school is insane. But however, I did finish, go back to school the following fall after touring all over from Michigan to Florida and everywhere in between. And it was, I, I was like, I love this. And this is what I'm going to do. Yeah. And I was obsessed with hard rock and rock and roll. And uh, we even opened for Ted Nugent on a city gig way back then. And, and I was like, oh my God, Ted Nugent. <laughs> and, uh, but that was a trip, and uh, we were playing like six nights a week, man, in bars, and, and on breaks, I'd have to go stay in the kitchen or the, the office because uh, the laws and crazy, man. Yeah, and so when when did you know that in order to make it, you really had to get out of where you were living and go to Los Angeles? <laughs> oh, well, man, that didn't come until much later. Um, you know, I, I, I played around Louisville. I finished high school. Yeah, and I was fortunate. I was fortunate enough to get a, a, a music scholarship. My band director, Ernie Sanders, was like my mentor, man. And he, he was like, he was really strict with me. He was, he was basically like my surrogate father, and kicked my ass. He made me stay on trumpet. He wouldn't let me play drums at school. He goes, "No, go back. You know, you got to. You play trumpet here. You don't want to be a, a drummer." Go play drums at home on your own time. I was like, okay. So I just did what I was told. And uh, I got this music scholarship at the University of Louisville. Well, the whole time I was doing all this, I was playing in bars like six weeks a week. And that's where I was really learning how to play. And so I thought I was always singing. And I heard all drummers out there saying, you know, be part of it. It changes your whole approach to music. And you think from a more musical standpoint. And, uh, you know, it was not too many years later, uh, actually, um, a rat became big, and they were actually. I, I remember Bon Jovi was opening for Rat, and uh, I, I, we were playing at a bar. And here comes it's like twelve o'clock at night. We're playing, and uh, here I see a bunch of long hairs. It's Rat. The whole band came in. So Bobby Blotcher sat in. I can't remember what they played. It was funny, and he's like, oh, "Man, dude, you're a great drummer, man. You got to move to L.A." I go, "Really?" And uh, Here's like a full-time rock star telling me I'm good. So about a year went by, or a year and a half, they came back again. And they had a new store, a record store. And I took my demo. At that point, I was in a heavy metal band. It was 84-ish. 
And uh, he goes, dude, what are you doing here? I told you to move to L.A. It's exploding out there, 85 me. And uh, he gave me some phone numbers. I followed up. And sure enough, in February of 1987, I moved to L.A. Yeah. And was the Ronnie Montrose album, was that the first studio album you worked on? No, I did a few other albums and singles and things like that. And I used to play some commercials around Louisville. Um, but that was like what you would call my first big break. And I was a Montrose streak. My brother had the cassette tape of it, of the first Montrose album. And uh, my band, uh, Buster Brown, in the 80s, uh, from like 80, late 83 to 86, we were a regional metal band. We played over there from Michigan to New York, down to Florida, everywhere in between. They had a huge following. We also had a truck and a PA, because most bands in that area, you carry your own truck and PA, you have your own PA and lights and, and, it, and a truck. Well, uh, through our manager, found out that Ronnie uh, Montrose wanted to, was going to tour, and we were going to blow it open like 26 dates. But he wanted to use our production. So it worked that great. We became friends. Anyway, after the tour was over a couple of weeks later, um, we did a call. And the manager called and said, Hey, Ronnie Montrose wants you and, and Johnny, the singer from Busted Out, to, to play on the new record. I'm like, going, What? And, uh, uh, it was like, you've got to be joking. Yeah, you're going to fly to San Francisco, spend two weeks, you know, record with Ronnie. And man, dude, I, I, I got coach chills thinking about it to this day. And man, I was like rolling on the floor, screaming over the phone. I called the singer. And uh, apparently he really liked us a lot. So that was like my first big break. <laughs> Because that's what was on the demo, and then he looked at you like, "What the hell are you doing?" 
Oh, no, no, no. Everybody was bringing in, like, these huge drum kits, double bass, you know, six toms and 50 cymbals. And when I went in, I brought my, my kid in. All I brought was a hi-hat, a kick drum, a snare drum, uh, two crash cymbals, and a ride cymbal. He goes, what, what, what is it? What are you, making a joke or something? I go, well, no, on your demo, there are no tom pills. <laughs> Why would I bring toms when there aren't any tom pills? And he goes, ooh. I like that. And uh, we kind of hit it off. And uh, that's pretty nuts. And that's kind of how it went. And what was important is kick, snare, kick, snare. It's a really groovy music, man. Right? Yeah. It was, it's so talented. Yeah. And who else? In, did you know anybody else in the band at the time? Or were you the last there, was no, there, was, there was no band. There was a, a, we were going through different bass players. And there was this uh, a stream of guitars. There was a guitar guy who was in... They had uh, who was Lenny's friend for about a few weeks, but it just didn't work out with him. And then Johnny and Danny, the bass player and the cars, uh, came in together, and they were like kind of the solid guys there. And then I was able to bring Rick Steiner, my friend from Louisville, in because I moved out to actually play with his band, which we were playing in bars six nights a week again, playing cover songs, you know, playing top forty. Mm-hmm. So Rick got the gig, man. He Rick's a rock solid guitar. So he came to my, my school where, you know, you play and you play. You play three sets a night, three hour sets, and you play all the top hits. You've got to be good. Man. you got to understand. Yeah. And of course, I interviewed Derek Shulman a few months ago. And he, oh, signed, he signed you guys. Yes. And Derek, for those who don't know, Derek Shulman signed Bon Jovi, Cinderella, Men Without Hats, uh, Tears for Fears. He was a, a, just a machine in the, uh, around that time period in the 80s, and he's not seen him come. And uh, that's how we got to know Derek. He's been in touch recently. Yeah, yeah. He's, he was, I, had a great, I had a great chat with him there. I was, I was going through all the bands he'd signed, and I was like, you definitely had the Midas touch. Oh, good. He was like, I mean, man. And he was, you know, his background, you know, he was in, uh, in, in General Giant. Yeah. And, uh, yeah, uh, you know, he had a great musical career as well. Yeah, and of course, he got you guys um, up to Little Mountain to work with, with Bob Rock. Right, and for those who don't know, Bob Rock, you know, produced uh, the Metallica albums before that, uh, this and that. But Tina, he was the engineer for Bruce Fairbairn. Bruce Fairbairn produced uh, uh, Bob Jolly. Did he do ACDC? Bruce Fairbairn, I don't know. Yeah, Fairland did um, ACDC, yeah. Yeah, and, and and Bob Rock was his engineer. And our band kind of put Bob on the map, funny enough, because before that he, was, uh, he wasn't really known as a producer. So uh, what crazy how things go, you know? Yeah. And, you know, Bob ended up doing uh, Motley Crue, um, the Dr. Feelgood album, as from Tony's suggestion because he loved the Team Come album and so on and so on. Yeah, now that album when it that album when it came out, James, and when I when we did the Little Mountain project, I didn't bring this up, but it was one of the things Derek brought up straight away was the, the interviews for the album where they said we don't know who Led Zeppelin are. And, oh my God! Yeah, you know, and, and I'm thinking to myself, really? Well, you know what? 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 Where that came from was, um, you know, when you say something like this is being recorded. And I see something kind of cynical, like, uh, yeah, like, we don't really let that with it. We know I'm being cynical, or whatever. But the problem is, when you're doing an interview with somebody, it goes in print. When you read that, the journalist prints it, and you read that, you don't get to the reflection of the voice, or, like, cynicism. Or, or even, it's really hard. You may say something funny, but in print, it doesn't read funny. And that's the thing that, that happened with Kingdom Come, and, like, you know, Danny said sarcastically, yeah, I've never heard of King and Tom, oh, what's that one, you know? Yeah. So, and that's what happens. And then also, uh, unfortunately, Lenny maybe had some studies with a few journalists. And as they say in journalism, um, you know, uh, good news tra- travels fast, but bad news travels faster. And yeah. in this case, you know, word gets around really quick. And I believe this kind of happened to Quiet Riot, you know, uh, and uh, God bless, you know, R.I.P. Kevin, but, you know, he said the wrong thing to a few too many people, you know, and uh, that's kind of like what happened with us. Yeah. I, and I, I used to actually argue with 
uh, uh, you know, a couple people in the band, and you know, and they'd say like, "Why do you always bring up Led Zeppelin?" I go, "Because they said, who's your favorite drummer?" I said, "John Bonham from Led Zeppelin." Um, who was your biggest influence? Well, Led Zeppelin Four. That was a big influence. I mean, it, it, it set the tone for how I said drum. You know, he's so glad. You know, they say, oh, well, maybe don't say that. And I kept saying it, though. Because it was the truth. I speak the truth. I don't, you know. Yeah. got me on was the Monsters of Rock tour in 88 and yeah. I was living in Ireland at the time and I had Donington but when I saw the bill for that over in the States I was jealous that was an incredible line I, I mean think of it today I mean where all the bands are but, you know headlining with Van Halen um, well let's go the other way opening with King and Carl we went on about 145 every day and then after us was Metallica <laughs> then after that was Dockin, then Scorpions, and then Van Halen headlines. And just, wow. It, it, that was a wonderful tour. And that's how I got to know the, the Scorpions, because um, they were, uh, we were on the same label together. Yeah. So, very, very interesting stuff. Did you get a chance to, uh, to mingle with all the other band members, like Van Halen and Sammy and... Yeah. Uh, of course, man. Sammy has got to be one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet in your life. And, uh, you know, uh, we stayed in the same hotel as the Scorpion, so we'd see them often and we'd hang out. Um, we'd go to dinner a lot because of the same label. And, uh, I, you know, got to know the Metallica boys. I mean, actually, you know, three times being, uh, <laughs> um, Oh, yeah, yeah, hold on, I lost my train We got, you know, we hang out and we group off, you know, and then things have to other. There's a couple of different times going down to the store and scoring a couple of cases of beer. It's a day off, and you're like, oh, wow. Because we always play like three nights, days a week, Wednesday, Saturday, and Sunday. And, um, of course, I knew the docking guys from LA. I don't want to get told to those people. And it was just a really wonderful, wonderful time. Yeah, is that where your friendship with uh, Jeff Pilson started? Actually, I met Jeff uh, at the Rainbow. Him and uh, and this, this uh, funny enough, this is uh, the odds of this restaurant. Um, Jeff was uh, uh, I'm sorry. Uh, let me back up just a little bit. There was a couple of numbers that, that Bobby Blocher back in Louisville gave me, and one of the phone numbers was that of a guy named Michael Dunn. So. I'm in the bar playing, um, this is with the Rick Snyder band, and here comes, there's this rock and roll guy over there, and I, I was like, oh, I'm going to go talk to him, he looks hard rock. So I go up to him, start talking, he goes, hey man, I go, hey man, you know, uh, what do you do around here? I just been in LA maybe six weeks. He goes, well, you know, I, I go, where do I go? He goes, oh, go down to the rainbow. I go, what's that? He goes, it looks like a pizza place on Sunset Boulevard. 
I go, yeah, well, you know what? Bobby Block is a whack. They need a couple phone numbers. And uh, uh, one of the guys, the guy named Michael Diamond, he goes, I'm Michael Diamond. I go, what? <laughs> what are the odds? <laughs> and that was nuts. Anyway, Michael was was playing with Jeff Tilson because uh, docking was over. And, uh, oh, no, 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 I'm sorry. They were working on a side project this was before docking was over. And uh, I went down there and there was Jeff. And uh, we hung out that night and just got stupid. And uh, Jeff and I ended up going on to make about probably at least 15 or 16 albums together. So yeah. he's been a lifelong friend and a great, great guy and an incredible bass player musician. Yeah. So, so we'll move on to, to the uh, In Your Face album in 1989. Oh, yeah. It's definitely a more mature album than, than the debut. It's more varied. Yeah. You know what? Um, I was very proud of that album. Uh, I co-wrote on four songs, and I uh, actually came up with the title. Uh, Lenny had the title, Do You Like It? Uh, I didn't write the lyrics, most of the lyrics to that song, and I came up with the In Your Face. Because we were in the studio, and we uh, we were always in there going, yeah, man, I'm sitting out, tell the engineer, just make it like In Your Face, you know? And uh, that straight sucks. So um, what, uh, another part, too, of this, the songwriting is incredible. That is an excellent, excellent album. I'm super proud of it. And, uh, uh, you know, the tide was changing a little bit because Guns N' Roses came on the scene and it was all about Guns N' Roses. And rightfully so. And they came out with a, a groundbreaking album. But that album I'm very, very proud of. And we, we actually did that with producer Keith Olsen. And Keith Olsen was the producer. Gosh, she did. She uh, was like Rumors, Double Vision. From uh, Foreigner, he did White Snake, you know, the Show of the Night album. Uh, and he would go on to produce my band Wild Forces. And he said, got us a deal with Atlantic. And he also did Scorpion's Crazy World. And uh, wow, that's how small the rock and roll world is, man. Yeah. But yeah, man, I love, I love Tino coming to space, man. Yeah, do you, now, I had a Keith on and we did a chat with him, a career chat. And I asked, yeah. him, I asked him about In Your Face. And he said, Lenny was tough on the band members. Was he tough on you? He was tough because he knew my, um, my, what's the word? Without trying to hear again. He was tough on me in the sense that he knew what he wanted from the drums, and he knew that I could do it, and I could deliver it, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, and he challenged me, man. He, he's a smart, really sharp smart guy when it comes to drums, groove, and he's all about the feel, and, and no, man, do this, play this, and, uh, and he wasn't, like, ordering around or anything, and, uh, but he knew what he wanted, definitely, and that's why, you know, he plays a lot of guitar on that album, he wrote, you know, gosh, 75% of that album, and uh, he would write, he, he got so far as he wrote the solos, you know, and he would have Danny play note to note the solos that he recorded on his demos. And he just made these demos on his four track. It was crazy. And it just sounded great because he had the Killer Lynn 3000 drum machine or whatever it was. And, uh, but that's great. When you have a songwriter in a band who knows what they want from the drums, it makes my life easy.
No, James, I was buying Kerrang! magazine at the time. And in two weeks. You were writing for what? Well, I, I, I yeah. was buying Kerrang! magazine. Oh, every, right, of course. And every two weeks it came out, and there was a paragraph in it that before you guys had practically left Kingdom Come at the same time, was it for the same reasons? I'm sorry, can you, I, I, I'm, I'm trying not to move because the deception is maybe not so good. Can you, can you repeat that, please? Sure. So the four, the four of you guys left Kingdom Come at more or less the same time, was it for the same reasons? No, it was different. Um, much, uh, you know, um, our, um, um, our manager was really hands-on in the beginning, and then he just had his miracle problems. And, and we're not being said, oh, he was with us on the road the entire time. And he kind of had Lenny on a short leash. Then, as he was not in the picture, he, um, you know, Lenny was kind of like, I, I, I wouldn't say losing the focus. Lenny was sober. He never drank. He never just drugged nothing. But he would just emotionally go, go, go off sometimes. And um, I'm, kinda, I'm not sure if I'm actually answering the question right, but... Uh, uh, you know, it was it just what what it was, and I had always had a sense over the years because I played in so many bands when it was time to like move on and move forward. So I kind of put the word out. I picked up uh, and and I contacted the singer from Buster Brown from the earlier from the eighties, the guy who sang and the Montrose album, and we started writing together again on my time off. And I just I, I'm really I can see a sinking ship a thousand miles away, and this is one. So I bailed out. I was the first to give my notice. Okay. The others, I don't know what happened with the others, but it just it just kind of exploded in a matter of just a few months. Yeah. Now, w- one of the things Keith Olson said to me when I talked to him, um, he did the Crazy World album, The Scorpions. He said he got you to play on it. Is that true? Well, actually, what they were working on, the, no, no, no. Well, actually, what that was was, they were working on the Pure Instinct album in 94, 90, I'm sorry, in 1995. And they recorded a bunch of tracks over at a Rudolph studio in Hanover, Virginia. Well, they said they were having trouble with the, uh, the engineer producer at the time. So they sent the tapes over to Keith. And Keith called one day and goes, hey, come on over to the studio tomorrow. Bring your drums. Uh, I got something I want you to play on. And I go, wow, okay, cool. He would, I go, what is it? He goes, I'm not telling you. So, it took a tape out, and I'm listening, I'm like, oh, wait a second. <laughs> this sounds really familiar. There's no vocals on it, either. And uh, I played on, like, five tracks, and it was, they were future tracks for, for Pure Instinct. Ah. And, um, however, later, they would go back and re-re... Keith did a lot of work on that album. They went back and re-recorded the drums with uh, a, a, a session drummer in Germany called named Kurt Press. Yeah. However, a few of the tracks that I did play on, I think were released in some Asian markets and some foreign markets on some compilation or something like that. So uh, uh, that is not me playing on Pure Instinct, but I, I am. I did play on like five tracks. So, uh, yeah. you know, yeah. He got the album mixed up and he said to me it was Crazy World. No, I definitely did not play on uh, anything on Crazy World. Uh, uh, I definitely would have broadcast that to everybody in the province. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, so tell me about the formation of Wild Horses. Um, well, Wild Horses was left over from the singer. Me and the singer of Buster Brown, the, the little metal band uh, from '84, and the singer who sang on the Matros album with me. Um, we had Wild Horses, and we had a couple of local musicians that did work out. Fast forward to Keith. Uh, I, I, but Johnny, Johnny actually, Johnny Tinger, as he left, he played Foreigner. Yeah. Then. I forgot what Johnny did. And that was, uh, that was like 90, 91, 92, whatever. And uh, I, I was heartbroken. I have it in front of me. I have it in front of me. Oh, the Foreigner album? Or? Unusual. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah, I remember seeing him on our studio. Anyway, I was actually pretty heartbroken over that because we were like really tight, really good friends. And, uh, but he had a wife, and the wife wanted kids, and they needed money, and, you know, and then it turned into a lawsuit, which I won, and then, et cetera, and, you know, bad things happen yeah. in rock and roll sometimes. But we uh, put the word out, we auditioned about 40, 50 singers, and we, that's when we found John Lovett from Boston, mm-hmm. a great singer, and uh, 
And so we went on to do that album. And again, the tide was turning then. Um, as I mean, we were getting played on all these rock stations. Our single was number one on at one point. It was on 22 different stations. It was number one. We went on a little tour. But there was a new band in town, and they were called Nirvana. And overnight, dude, within a matter of months, I kid you not, you know, the word alternative came about, and Nirvana took over, the, the whole grunge thing started. Our band, we were, you know, considered a maiden hair band, even though we were in the 90s. Uh, you know, nobody was interested anymore. It just uh, literally overnight. grunge music? You know, there was a lot of songs I liked. I really liked Soundgarden a lot. Uh, at the time, I didn't really care for Pro Jam. I, and Nirvana, they had a couple great songs. You couldn't help loving it. I mean, at the time, MTV was still playing videos. They, they played Smells Like Teen Spirit every 15 minutes, it seemed like. And there were some great songs that came out of that, that whole era, man. But it, honestly, it just, it just wasn't my cup of tea. I was still stuck in, you know, 80s mode. And, uh, but now, you know, in retrospect, look, look where we are. I think mean, there's maybe a, a small handful of our bands are still around. Pro Bands 1, who was great. You know, Food Fighters, go figure, biggest band in the world. And uh, that's David Gold. I mean, incredible. Yeah. You know, they have, and, 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 and he just was the big time in my songwriting. And, 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 you know, there's just so much greatness that came out of it. Unfortunately, there's so much disaster and heroin addiction and, and uh, with every big wave of music comes a new drug, you know. And uh, unfortunately, this was a really dark period. The 90s were really bad for hard rock and bands like the Scorpions. When I joined, uh, you know, we were, we were doing great overseas, but in America, I mean, it was, it was, you know, it was not great. We weren't selling many albums, and the shows were not all selling out or anything. And so it was a tough period in the 90s. Uh, even for bands like, you know, Aerosmith was huge. Yeah. There's a lot of bands that just couldn't really get a lot happening because of that whole grunge thing. But here we are today. Yeah, I want I want to ask you definitely about the the MSG album you worked on. What memories do you have of that one? The Polly Shaker group. Yeah, uh, that was the third of the of uh, the three albums that they did. And uh, I can't I can't remember the producer's name, but he he was pretty cool. Kevin, he and Jeff Tilton did that. Uh, I think he's the Oreo Speedway and some other bands. But me and Jeff Tilton worked on it, and uh, it was a great deal. Uh, and Robin, I've never knew anything about Robin. He was great. But we went and did pre production for just about, I mean, it was just about five days with Michael, and and Robin was there, and uh, maybe five, six days max. Then we went in and we knocked the whole album out in a few days. And, um, it was interesting working with Michael. He was in a uh, odd place at the time, I guess, but I didn't really know enough of what this was him. Now, in retrospect, when you see Michael now, he's all bright and everything's great. But that was it. I really enjoyed that album. And we actually did a video for it. 
because uh, the song went and gone, and that song got tons of airplay. So that is a really wonderful experience. Uh, anytime I can work with Jeff, I'll do it. Yeah, and did you do the tour with, with Michael and Robin as well? Uh, no, there was actually talk of a tour, and we were actually uh, going to do Japan, and I actually had my drums uh, ready to be picked up. Uh, I had them by the front door. They were going to take them and put them in cases, and we were, we were to leave for a tour in Japan. I mean, I, I sent my passport for the visa and the whole deal, and then all of a sudden we go, oh, manager calls and goes, oh, tour's been, uh, Japan's been happening. Now, I had Bo Hill on the show, and I asked him about the Warrant album, and I said... Well, I'm, so, I'm sorry, you had who on? Bo Hill. Oh, Bo! Yeah. Oh, Bo's great. And I asked him what was the big difference between... the, 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 the He did the Cherry Play record, and then he did Ultraphobic, and he said the biggest difference was you and Rick in the band. That's where the, the difference in the sound came from. Do you agree with that? Uh, dude, uh, you know what? Uh, that's really flattering because Bo is, is does his stuff, and I'm really flattered. But yeah, you know, Jamie, uh, they were they were things things were changing already because uh, of all the garage movement and stuff, and things were getting heavier. So when they did their third album, um, uh, what was their third album? Doggy Dog. Doggy Dog, exactly. Yeah, if you use Doggy Dog, that's a pretty heavy album for yeah. for Warren. And then Ultraphobic was Rick in the band. The sky was the limit because anything was possible on guitar. And Janie recognized that and started really experimenting more and more and more. And actually, I'm very proud, though, that I actually wrote the riff to the, uh, to the song A Family Picnic. Oh. I wrote the riff to that, to the uh, chorus. And uh, I co-wrote on that four other songs, which... I was always very proud of that because, you know, drummers sometimes don't get the recognition about the songwriting aspect. Rick wrote the verse, I wrote the choruses, and then I wrote some of the lyrics in there. And, uh, so it was yeah. a really wonderful time. Ultraphobic, I, I would recommend anybody to make a revisit that album. It's been my top five all-time favorite albums. It's excellent. Jamie's at its peak. I think, um, I think that album is superb. I remember buying it when it came out and if I had it, if, you know, it was a couple of years too late because it kind of went under the radar because it weren't with the name. Exactly. And, you know, it was guilt by association. People think, oh, well, Warren, blah, blah, blah. All they could think about was Cherry Pie, which <laughs> most bands would give their luck nuts to have a hit like that, you know? Yeah. Yeah, so so what made you, was, was the Scorpions gig that made you leave Warrant? No, um... Uh, uh, you know, again, remember it's called the music business. 
And, uh, you know, weren't, everything was cruising along, but they owed me some money, and we they didn't seem to want to pay me. I'm like, oh, God, I need this money. You know, I'm on the road here. I've got, uh, you know, Athena at home. I've got a kid, you know, we, you know, uh, and, uh, man, you know, come on, pay me, pay me. And I go, look, man, if I'm not paid in two weeks, I'm going home. They're going to go, no, you wouldn't, because I'm like a, you know, just a goofball guy, like I'm happy all the time. And I sit there with a smile on this. Look, hey, guys, if I'm, you know, I told the manager, and, and sure enough, two weeks went by, and I say the next three weeks. And this only time I've ever left the tour was in the middle of that, that Hornet tour. It was maybe like the fourth or fifth plague we'd done. And uh, all they had to do was say me. And uh, I said, you know what? I'm going home. And I went home. And uh, I had them probably about the next year off, or not even a year. And then the phone rang one day, and it was the manager of Scorpion and said, hey, brother. Or if he didn't say that, he goes, Hey, James, would you consider the Scorpions one where you're interested, you'd be interested in coming and having a play with them over in Hanover, Germany? And I'm going, ah, right. I thought it was somebody playing a joke on me, but uh, it really was. And I uh, flew over, and that's, as we say, rockable history. Yeah. What, what did you play with the Scorpions the first time you, you, you rehearsed with them? Can you remember? Well, you know, I, I, again, going back to my, my early rock days, when I was playing in bars, you know, I was in a hard rock band and metal bands and all kinds of bands. And I'd already played Big City Nights, Rocky Like a Hurricane, The Zoo, uh, No One Like You. I played all those songs hundreds of times, you know, with my bands, because, you know, in the Midwest and down south, whatever, you played play cover songs back then. So I went in and I said, they go, what do you want to play? I go, well, let's play Big Street Nights. I just killed it on the spot. And um, I, so it wasn't really like an audition audition because they did have other guys lined up. We knew they could, I could show up and just say it might not work. But um, it was pretty much, you know, they didn't tell me right away. I, I hung around Hanover for like another week or so. And um, right before I went home, they go, hey, man, we want you to do the tour. And it was great. So, uh and, and but the, the one point that I will always remember, and I might have said this before, is that I asked Stuart, I go, yeah, well, what, I, the manager, when he, I, I go, well, what makes them think of me? Because, you know, we toured together, you know, King and Carmel Anthony. And he goes, what? He goes, well, they remembered you were a really nice guy. And that melted me. I was like, oh, wow. So nice guys don't finish last. He goes, oh, and of course, you're a great gentleman. I was like, oh. So, you know, it's funny how things go, you know, and um, I was just really flattered. And to this to this day, I'm grateful and thankful for the opportunity. I mean, God dang it, how did a dream come true? Yeah, it, it's, in, it's interesting, James, you bring up the, you know, they said you were a really nice guy. What I'm finding when I'm talking to a lot of musicians, when they start with new bands, it's not how good a player you are. Of course, that's important. It's how you vibe with the rest of the guys, how you get on with them. Yeah, you know, because think about it, you know, you're spending, you know, two hours out of the day, uh, you know, you're on stage playing, rocking out. Then there's another 22 hours where you're traveling or you're on a bus or you're on a plane or you're here and you're there. And, you know, that's one thing I, I love that every time when we do a press conference, you know, we're always at the team. We were a family. We're a rock and roll family. And uh, it's true. Because if you don't get on and you don't like each other, and you're going to all these dinners, and you I mean, I've had probably thousands of dinners with the Scorpions. And with the promoters. And man, that is a big, big part of it, the chemistry. It's just like a, a husband and wife has that chemistry. Yeah. And I was fortunate to be among the Scorpion chemistry at work for 21 plus years, you know. Yeah, and of course, the first record you played with the Scorpions on was uh, Eye to Eye. And a lot of people don't look fondly on that album. Um, what, what do you think of it now? Well, you know what? The songs, there are some great, great songs on that album on Eye to Eye. But the way they recorded, the style they recorded in, is not what, what worked. Um, because at the time, if you recall, this is this is 1997, 
And everyone, including Aerosmith and you name it, was exterminating the loops. And for those who don't know what loops are, loops are programmed, pre-programmed drums and things that all the 90s actually using. And we, our producer at the time, which we insisting on it, we used it, and uh, that was the first album where I put the drums on last. We recorded everything, recorded it with loops and everything, and then I did the drums very last. Which was very interesting. We did it in Austria, in Dornburg, Austria. And it was just the way the songs were recorded, because there's so many great songs on that album, but it's recorded long. And uh, other than that, you know, it's especially Scorpion Curse to say, oh, that album sucks. And even at the time, people were saying, oh, Kodak comes in and ruins the Scorpions. I had nothing to do with it. Yeah. I did co write on about three or four songs on Eye to Eye, but. of our James Kotak career retrospective. We'll pick it up with uh, more of James's memories of Scorpion's Eye to Eye when we resume this one next week. So obviously next week, again, lots more great Scorpion stories from Kotak as well as talking all about the Kotak band itself. And if you thought that James was candid in his conversation this week, I got to tell you that next week the, uh, the conversation gets even more candid uh, Richie asked a few uh, interesting questions, and James didn't back down from any of it. Gave some really honest and heartfelt answers. So definitely stay tuned next week as we wrap up our two-parter on James Kotak. But for this week, there ain't no more stick a fork in it. This puppy is done. So for Richie, myself, and everybody else here at Focus on Metal... Have yourselves a great metal week. Go out there and celebrate Metal Month. And until we talk to you again next week, remember... Focus on Metal! Everything else is insignificant. Still here? It's over. Go home.